Hello and welcome to the latest in our Expert View series. My name is Kevin Dolan. I'm a trustee director at uh, Vedette's London office. Today we're going to build on our previous podcast in relation to restructuring matters, but today we're focusing specifically on restructuring plans and a lot more about them a bit later on. I'm very pleased to welcome some distinguished guests to the panel today, namely Dan Mindell, Restructuring and Covenant Specialist from Cardano, Naomi Palmer from Hogan Lovells, who has already had the advantage of seeing quite a few restructuring plans, not that that many of those have occurred so far, but has quite a lot of experience in that side. And also to Katie Banks, who is a very experienced pensions lawyer. I know Katie's got some interesting views on restructuring plans and how the pension scheme deficit fits into that. So a very warm welcome to you all and thank you very much for joining me. So first thing I'd like to do just purely from a restructuring point of view is just to see where we are in the marketplace at the moment. It's been fairly quiet over the last couple of years because of government interventions and everything else. And certainly I, along with everybody else, has been expecting a big upturn in the restructuring activity which may still take place. We've got potentially lots of um, refinancings out there which might take place in the next year or 18 months or so, um, which I suspect will be a lot more expensive than when it was taken out in the first place. So just a quick update really from from, uh, from our experts. Dan, are you seeing any big upturn in, in the restructuring market at the moment? Um. Well, it's, it's interesting, actually, Kevin, because the, the, the statistics are, if you look at the statistics, that insolvencies have gone up quite a lot in the last year and certainly gone up um, compared to 2020 pre-pandemic. But actually, if you look underneath it, it's still predominantly uh, insolvent liquidations, which tend to be at the lower end, smaller, you know, one-man businesses, that kind of thing. And in the mid-market, large corporate area, it's still relatively quiet but there has been an uptick and we're seeing a little bit more come through but but not sort of the big wave and certainly not a, a big recessionary wave as, as people might expect but as you said uh, I think there's still an expectation that as you go later into the year and into next year when we might start to see the real impact of the very very quick rise of interest rates 0.1 percent to four percent rising in the last 15 months but still not necessarily felt by corporates because the, the debt they took out is still at the lower rates. And, and, and we're expecting some impact for sure for that. And, and we even saw last week the Silicon Valley Bank run and, 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 and failure was caused by effectively, without going into detail on this one, a shock uh, related to that rise in interest rates. So short answer, quiet, but potentially more to come. Yeah, thanks, Dan. Yeah, I think that certainly the failures last week have just highlighted again potentially more volatility in in the marketplace which i suspect is the last thing that any of us want but you know i guess the upside is that um interest rates apparently have peaked so we're told um so and inflation is coming down so who knows but uh no be, be interested to hear your views on the restructuring side as well it's, yeah it's similar to be honest i think that you know everybody sort of 
waiting on it. There's kind of a number of contributing factors coming together, which make people think that, you know, there, there will be a kind of a, a big surge in activity. And I think, as Dan says, there's been an uptick, definitely. And a few kind of specific incidents like, um, you know, um, Silicon Valley Bank last week, but not not the massive wave as yet. That's not to say that it might, you know, it's never going to come and perhaps it will do. But I think not not the kind of big shock of activity that people were necessarily expecting. Sure. Thanks, Naomi. I, I know as well, I, I used to work at the PPF and I speak to them quite regularly and the number of insolvents they're, they're actually getting at the moment are very few and far between. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. So thanks for that, Bo. So let's now focus on um, the main content of this uh, this expert view series, which is around restructuring plans. Naomi, passing the buck to you again. Um, I wonder if you might just just explain exactly what they are, um, how they actually came about and why. And also, I suppose, why all of us restructuring people are getting so excited about them, because we are. Um, so restructuring plans are introduced as part of the government's kind of COVID related amendments um, to kind of corporate governance and, and insolvency law in summer 2020. So they're fairly new now, although there has been about 20 of them so far. Um, and and quite a few of them just in 2023 alone. Um, so, you know, they are something that are, are being relatively widely used. Um, the restructuring plan was, is based on the uh, kind of legislative framework for the scheme of arrangement. Um, and it's, you know, which has long been used in UK restructurings. But the restructuring plan has got a key enhancement in the form of the cross-class cram down, which is the thing that we're all getting particularly excited about. In a scheme of arrangement, um, a majority of the creditors in each class of creditors need to have voted in favour of the scheme in order for the scheme to be sanctioned and be able to bind all creditors. That means that under a scheme, each class effectively has a veto. Um, and that means that a compromised class is unlikely to vote in favour. The key distinction between the scheme of arrangement and the restructuring plan is that the court is able to sanction the restructuring plan even if not all classes have voted in favour. So you can use the positive vote of one creditor class to effectively cram a creditor class that has not voted in favour. Um, that's not, you know, that's not to say that can happen in every scenario. There are a couple of specific conditions that need to be satisfied um, before that can happen. So first of all, the creditor, no creditor, can be worse off under the restructuring plan than they would be in the relevant alternative. And secondly, the plan needs to have been voted in favour of by at least one class of creditors, which would be in the money in the relevant alternative. And the relevant alternative is whatever the court considers to be the most likely um, to occur if the plan is not sanctioned, which is sometimes insolvency, not always. Sure. Um, so I know in CVAs, for example, you needed, and I do appreciate that was more focused on unsecured creditors, but you needed a percentage in terms of a majority to get the, the thing through. Is that the same with the restructuring plan? So the starting position is that in each class of creditors, you need a 75% positive vote. And so if 75% if of the creditors by value in that class have voted in favour, that class has voted in favour. But as I say, there is the ability for the court to sanction the plan even where not all classes are voted in favour, provided oh, those really? conditions are fulfilled. And also there is an overriding requirement of fairness. The plan has to be fair. OK, that's that, that, that's interesting. Um, yeah. 
I guess we're all probably waiting to see the first one that actually arises, which actually seeks to compromise a, a, a pension scheme deficit. And I think I, I probably should emphasise, which I, I will do more than once on this podcast, is just to reiterate that the, the Pension Protection Fund has the overall voting rights on a <clears throat> on a restructuring plan. So it takes it out of the hands of the trustees. But we'll talk about that more about that a bit later. But I'll be very just interested. You, you said there's probably only about 20 that have arisen so far. Are you able to give a bit more flavour on your personal experience today and, and, and any particular views, Naomi? Yeah, so as a firm, we at Hogan Novels have been involved in a fair few. Um, the key one is probably Virgin Active, which was the first fully contested cross-class cram down and basically set out much of the case law in this area. We were acting for the senior secured lenders um, who were being compromised somewhat under the plan. But the plan basically affected kind of a full balance sheet restructuring and sought to compromise a number of um, unsustainable lease liabilities. The landlords um, to the Virgin Active, the landlords um, of the Virgin Active Group sought to challenge the plan, and the court exercised the cross-class cram-down power to effectively compromise those landlord classes, despite the fact that they had not voted in favour of the plan. Um, so that that's kind of I guess the 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 big one that we've been involved in, but there have been a, there have been a number of others, and I think um, they are becoming a tool that are, that are being more widely used. So 2022 was actually a fairly quiet year for restructuring plans, but it, in the last three months of 2023 alone, we've seen the same number of plans either being talked about or actually having gone through the courts as there were in the whole of 2022. So they yeah. they are kind of a tool that's here to stay and and things that people are something that people are looking to use. Yeah. So from my understanding, there haven't been any yet that have actually compromised the pension scheme deficit. Is that sort of right from from your experience? Yeah, absolutely. I, there have been sort of three or four where there is a defined benefit pension scheme somewhere yeah. in the structure, but in each case they've been kind of expressly excluded from the plan. Um, yeah. And um, yeah, that sort of mirrors my experience that um, I had one recently where two employers of the scheme were both included in the restructuring plan, but it was specifically stated within that that the pension scheme was to remain outside of that. And I guess from my side, on from the trustee side, on the basis that um, the overall debt, the lender debt, was being reduced significantly, there was a debt for equity conversion by the lenders of quite a significant sum. Um, it would made a lot of sense for the pension scheme to actually say that's that sounds perfectly okay. Um, clearly we sought some covenant advice on that, but um, the overall feeling was that it was the end result was probably one that um, the scheme could live with. So the um, the DRC contributions could could continue as as was. So it didn't materially affect us, but we had to um, keep a very close watch on it. Dan, just wondering, anything that um, you've seen so far that has taken your 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 interest on on these things, or any experience that you've had today? In terms of experience, uh, no. I, I, you know, we've had a few restructurings in the last few years where we've had some DRC deferral requests, but yeah. it never came up 
that a restructuring plan was likely as part of the negotiation or in the event that we didn't, we didn't agree to it or anything like that. So certainly you've had a passing interest in what's going on, but no, no direct uh, experience of it yet. Sure, sure. OK, that's really helpful. Thank you. So I'd, I'd, I'd very much like to bring Katie in now because I think one of the burning questions, I think, for trustees and lots of pension stakeholders is whether a pension debt can actually be compromised. There seems to be a, a school of thought out there that it is just another debt. And if a, if a judge and all the other creditors um, deem fit to actually compromise a, um, a pension scheme deficit and there's some interest there. Is it can a section 75 debt be compromised or is it just a schedule of contributions can be compromised? But Katie, I know you've been given a lot of thought to this over the last um, couple of years. And it'd be really interesting to get your views on that. Thanks, Kevin. Yeah, what, what can be compromised under a restructuring plan is um, a creditor's rights and the trustees will be the creditors. Um, in relation to their recovery plan and if there were a section 75 debt in relation to that but but members aren't creditors and a lot of people get excited about the idea of changing benefits using um, these sophisticated um, arrangements but uh, I just don't see how you could say oh we're going to reduce everybody's benefits by 10% using a restructuring plan I, I just don't see how you could do it so I was thinking about how you might use a restructuring plan to manage your pension liabilities. And I think this, the simplest thing to do would be to try and um, defer recovery plan contributions. Yeah. So to reschedule the recovery plan and you know, ask the trustees, would it would be the PPF who do the vote to vote for it. But if they don't, it might still go ahead, um, even if the trustees weren't in favor of it. The other thought I had was that um, a restructuring plan doesn't trigger a section 75 debt but quite often a company would have the power to trigger a wind-up of a pension plan unilaterally and that would trigger a section 75 debt and so the restructuring plan could uh, compromise or reduce the amount that's being paid for that section 75 debt by the company and then the trustees would have to go and wind up the plan with the reduced amount and so that would reduce the amount of benefits that people get and the um, employer would be discharged from its obligations because the restructuring plan uh, says that it's met its obligations under the restructuring, well the, the court has blessed the amount that the company is willing to pay. So that would be a way of um, reducing the benefits. Um, it's quite similar to the way that we used to do um, something called a Bradstock compromise which is to compromise the actual amount of a section 75 debt that's payable but here it would be done without the trustees agreement if it was a cross-class cram down. Um, the, the PPF would have the vote and they probably object to it unless their criteria were fulfilled um, yeah. but um, again it could go ahead um, technically if the court thought it was fair and it was better than the alternative. Sure I think your first the first point there was um, was very interesting because certainly the in terms of wind, winding up a scheme, I mean, my experience has been that takes some considerable time and, and planning as well. So, you know, I guess my immediate thought, would that need to be considered in conjunction with the restructuring plan? That's something that needs to be planned well ahead of time. I think, um, I th well, obviously it would go more smoothly if you have made the plans, but, but um, it is feasible to wind up a pension plan with no warning because obviously a lot of them are, were triggered in the old days by um, oh. insolvency of a company and quite often that wasn't 
planned. So um, the trustees just have to do the best they can in that scenario. It, this would be a very complicated and novel scenario because the trustees would be in a position possibly where people were going to get less than PPF benefits, but there wasn't an insolvency that triggered um, PPF entry. But the trustees do have the power under the legislation to make an application to the PPF for admission even without an insolvency. So um, I think that might be the way round that. I mean, I have to say it would be a brave company to compromise a Section 75 debt below PPF levels. I, I, I would expect them to um, play it safer than that and to say, well, let's pay um, offer to pay at least the amount that would be more than PPF levels. Yeah, yeah, sure. That's that's that's, that's really interesting. And I guess just sort of coupled with that, obviously bearing in mind the um, the interests of the regulator, I'm wondering just how the you know pensions law, in particular the Pension Schemes Act of 2021, and indeed the the TPR's moral hazard powers by actually kick into that? I mean, I guess if it's a court-driven process and the court agrees to it, I wonder whether the regulator could have any challenge for that. I'd be interested to get your views on that. The regulator has said that where a court has sanctioned a restructuring plan, it's very unlikely that the regulator would conclude it was a criminal offence. I mean, it hasn't, it's not um, an absolute bar, but the, but the regulator has said that. So, and I can't see the court proving something where they thought somebody had behaved in a criminal manner. So I do, I do think that if you've if you've come up with this plan and you've put it to the court and they've sanctioned it, the the, the, um, the sponsors of the plan will be fairly safe on the criminal front. The regulator has said, though, that um, it may still want to use its moral hazard powers. And I think we should think about the two sets of powers as different tools. So the criminal powers are there as a deterrent and a punishment and moral hazard powers are there to raise money for the plan and the money that is paid in goes into the pension plan and we also should remember that the um, financial support directions are a no-fault regime so the regulator can use those powers where it's reasonable but even where someone hasn't behaved badly so the regulator might use those powers if they feel that they can extract value somewhere that would be for the benefit of the pension plan. Sure. Okay, that's really helpful, Katie. Thank you. So, Dan, I know you had a question for Naomi in terms of um, restructuring plans. Do you want to fire away yeah, on that? Uh, thanks, Kevin. And it kind of runs on that theme uh, sort of from how 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 does it work with the scheme and fairness of pension scheme? And uh, be interested to hear, Naomi, how you feel a pension scheme would be. Uh, treated in terms of, of, of class of creditor? Would it be in a class of its own? Would it be lumped in with the other presumably unsecured creditors? Uh, and sort of connected to that would be, uh, would you be allowed to single the pension scheme out for cram down or even just compromise in general um, and, and everyone else is intact? So as I mentioned before, the RP framework draws on the scheme of arrangement case law and what is set out in, in that is that the test is effective, the test for, for class composition is effectively whether the rights of the relevant creditors are so dissimilar as to make it impossible for them to consult together with a view to their common interest. So if it is the case that they can't consult together with a view to their common interest, they need to be put in separate classes. And the question, I guess, would be whether the pension scheme is able to consult with those other unsecured creditors, i.e. whether its rights and interests are sufficiently similar to those other creditors for them to be able to consult together? I expect not, to be honest. Um, I suppose you, the, what you would look at 
is um, the the rights that are to be released or varied under the plan, and then then any new rights that the plan will give the creditors. It strikes me that you're trying to do something quite different to the pension scheme than you are to another unsecured creditor who might expect to see, um, you know, the amounts owing to them kind of written off in full, or or maybe they they'd get kind of slightly better, either you know written off in, its, in their entirety or they'd be likely to get kind of a slightly better than they would in the relevant alternative there'd be sort of a, a pot for unskilled creditors um but you you might be trying to do something quite different with the pension scheme such that it would need to sit in, in its own separate class um it is technically possible for an for an rp to, to cram down that cram down that dissenting class um so in a scenario where the pension is put in its own class and and does not vote in favour or votes against, it is technically possible for the RP to then use the positive vote of the other classes to cram down that that kind of that class which vote does not vote in favour. But then I think we go back to the points that Katie was making around, you know, the regulator's powers and and it being a brave company that, would, that might look to do that. Sure, there's just so much to con consider here um, in terms of restructuring plans generally, I think, and I'm, I'm sure a judge has got those very views in his mind as to whether or not he is able to do that. It'd be interested to see what happens. Um, yeah. In terms of practicalities, um, I know that um, the restructuring plan I saw, um, we were definitely um, surrounded by lots of paperwork. What I did find really, really helpful um was that um there was a portal um put up and we were able to gain access to that very very easily um some of the documentation was horrendously long i think there was one document which was 700 pages long and i won't pretend for one minute that i went through every word but um and in fairness i think there were lots of the banking and the banking terms of documentation contained within that but it was actually all there and it was very easily accessible um which i which i actually found very helpful so i guess what i'm thinking of here is that if i'm if i'm a trustee what do i need to do when presented with one of these and, and i guess i'm repeating myself i know but the ppf ha has the voting rights here but there again that doesn't absolve the trustee from responsibility because the ppf will be expecting the trustee to do as much of the groundwork beforehand in terms of looking at the plan in terms of instructing covenant advisors to see whether there's any detriment to the scheme generally so from the trustees point of view i would very much like to have all that information available before i actually take it to the ppf and i think a, a point really worth making is that the the restructuring plan doesn't actually isn't actually a qualifying insolvency event so if a restructuring plan goes through, that does not mean that the pension scheme transfers to the PPF. So the trustee will have lots of input thereafter. So I would say from a trustee side, trustee needs to be aware of exactly what's going on, what happens afterwards, does it have a material impact on covenant going forward? And that's something that I'd expect to be asking Dan or any other covenant advisor for some some very serious views on what the impact is on on the scheme going going forward so i i think that's that that's a really important point knowing me back to you again i i maybe you could just very very briefly 
um, because I know there's so much involved here, is just to outline what sort of documentation the trustees would expect to get in, in one of these plans. Yeah, absolutely. I won't go into lots and lots of detail about yeah, process, yeah. but I guess um, worth mentioning, is, as we've said a few times, this is a court process. So it, there are a couple of court hearings before um, you get to court hearing stage. I suppose the the kind of the effective launch of the plan is the issuance of a practice statement letter, which will go to all creditors, um, but will also go to the PPF and the trustees and the, the regulator, even if um, the pension is to be excluded from the the impact of the plan. Um, so yes, the first step is the practice statement letter, which goes to all creditors and the pension trustee and um, PPF and regulator. There's then the convening hearing at which the the company basically makes its arguments as to class composition, um, and there's consideration as to you know whether there are any there is anything that that might might cause an issue for the plan effectively in high level terms. There's then a creditors. There's then a series of creditors meetings, assuming that the the judge was happy to convene those at the at the convening hearing. There'll then be the creditors meetings at which there'll be the votes of each of the classes. You then get to sanction hearing stage at which um, at which um, the judge will decide whether to sanction the plan. And as we've talked about, that can the judge can decide to do that even where not all of the creditors creditor classes have voted in favour. In terms of the documentation, I mentioned the practice statement letter. There'll also be an explanatory statement, which will usually be circulated to creditors immediately after the convening hearing, effectively to, to give creditors a bit more information to decide whether or not they want to vote in favour of the plan at the creditors' meetings. And as, as Kevin said, those those documents can be lengthy. And the reason the some of the reason for that is because there are there is some kind of financial advisor reports that will be in that explanatory statement. So there'll be some analysis as to the relevant alternatives and also usually some valuation evidence. So yeah. lots of paper. I guess to be honest, Naomi, lots lots of this at least to me suggests that these these restructuring plans are potentially really, really expensive. And I guess just speaking from the trustees point of view, how relevant will they be to um, SMEs who perhaps haven't got an awful lot of money to to actually spend on this type of process? But what I have heard is that costs generally are coming down on, on the restructuring plans. And I, I know, for example, one was actually approved recently out, out of the Leeds court, which I think did serve to reduce costs. Are you finding that generally there's much more thought going into the costs of this and the sort of people who might be affected by it? So it's it becomes something that is actually affordable by all and not not just by some. For example, you know, would you? I mentioned the court process and where it takes place. You know, perhaps using junior counsel rather than senior counsel, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Is there a movement to to actually reduce costs to make this more accessible to everybody? I think it's definitely a criticism that's been levelled at restructuring plans, the the what can be significant cost. But as you say, there have been a few more recently sort of within the last year, which have been um, done at kind of SME level. Um, and the judges in in those cases have have shown themselves to be kind of fairly sympathetic to the fact that companies with kind of you know, lesser resources aren't able to produce necessarily the same level of evidence as um, you know, mid cap, large cap um, entities. 
having said that, we've not seen any kind of level, you know, significant level of challenge for any of those SME restructuring plans. And it's difficult to say whether in a scenario whether it where in those restructuring plans somebody looks to challenge and looks to challenge kind of extensively, whether judges would similarly be saying that you don't need the same level of evidence. So not particularly helpful, but I guess it's a bit of a wait and see. No, no. I, I mean, I, I guess again, and I'm just now in conclusion. Um, I think, as someone said earlier, these restructuring plans are here to stay, and I suspect they'll be used a lot more going forward. Cost will definitely form an issue of that. Um, but I, again, I think you know precedent is so important. So. I mentioned earlier, I think there's an awful lot of parties out there are waiting to actually see someone actually put one of these in process, particularly involving a pension scheme and how that pans out. And I guess that could just open the floodgates. But as with all of these things, I think uh, time will tell. So it just leaves me to say thank you so much to uh, to our, our guests today, to Dan, to Katie and Naomi. Sorry, I think I, I put quite a lot of the owners on you there, but I was very much leveraging on your past experience, but that really is appreciated. So until the next time, I look forward to seeing you again on one of our Expert View podcasts. Thanks very much. Goodbye. Thanks, Kevin. Thank you.